Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. scripture reading is Revelation 6 verses 1 through 17. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal I heard the second living creature say come and out came another horse bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine." When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Revelation chapter 6, the chapter in its entirety, we have been working through the book of Revelation. We have paused on occasion to expand on some themes and topics, but otherwise we are teaching the book sequentially as far as 6 following 5 and preceding 7. Revelation chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 10, the question is asked. The martyrs pray. They cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That is the question that confronts us this morning as we consider this idea inside of Revelation chapter 6. Statistically, and I understand that statistics can be bent, They can be twisted. One set of statistics concerning current martyrs reads as follows. Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world, according to 
a Christian think tank, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. It says that 900,000, almost a million Christians, have been martyred in the last decade, equating to 90,000 a year in one every six minutes. We as a fellowship accent this idea of the persecuted church. Why? Because the church is being persecuted. The book of Acts says as much. And we live in a context in which the Christian faith is under attack by the serpent's seed. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, What has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10 reads, Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. I would argue that what we currently experience can be traceable historically. Things have been and are and will be until Jesus comes. So what's the difference? Why are we in a different era or a different period of time right now? Well, there are four reasons as to why I think we are in a different context, and that is based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, if we were to turn there, verses 4 and 5, but it says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So there's this pivot moment historically that sets the time period in which we are different than what has preceded, even though the world has always had nations invading nations, wars, famines, and death. But this is what marks the time period in which we live different. Secondly, you have this idea of the gospel, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is what sets apart this current period from what has preceded. Even though we are experiencing the same kinds of things, things are indeed different. The third thing is found in John chapter 14, and this is where I find the scripture interesting, especially if you are reading it as a single unified story with Jesus at the center. In John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus encourages and tells his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house, are many dwelling places. And then he says that he's leaving them to begin preparing a place. Well, what place is he preparing? I would argue that he is preparing to reestablish the garden. He is preparing to merge heaven on earth. That's what he is preparing. And so when he says to them, I am preparing a place, what he is doing is reconstituting the garden. He is going to bring everything back to the garden as it existed in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That's what he's doing right now. And he's doing that as he reclaims the cosmos as its rightful heir, creator, and redeemer. And what is equally compelling about John 14, he says, And if I go, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself. So the fourth thing concerning this period is that we are anticipating, we are waiting for the coming of Jesus. Jesus Christ is going to come again. And when Jesus Christ comes again... He will merge heaven and earth, and those two will be one, and the entire cosmos will be covered with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. And we see this in Revelation. When we look at the sixth seal, we see the sixth seal beginning in verse 12 of chapter 6 as describing the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ. That second coming is spoken of in chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 16, chapter 19, and chapter 20. There is this final punctuation mark to the story of God. And when Jesus Christ returns, he will establish his kingdom on earth. 
Second Thessalonians, we will read this inside our study today, chapter 1, 5 through 10, as well as 2 Peter chapter 3, 3 through 14. It describes this final moment when Jesus Christ returns, he comes back, and he sets up his kingdom on earth. Heaven will be on earth. But inside of this text, there's a dominant or primary idea, and the question is asked, how long? And the question, how long, is how long before you will judge How long will it be before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The martyrs are asking the simple question, when are you going to make all things right? And repeatedly inside the book of Revelation, he assures them that a day of correction is coming. And remember who writes this letter. It's Pastor John. He is in exile because of his faith in Christ. He's writing to a church or churches in tribulation, and he's writing a word of encouragement and comfort. He's writing to a church who is experiencing persecution and martyrdom. And he says to those Christians, to the churches, he says concerning the martyrs, there is coming a day of judgment and vengeance on those who have rejected the seed. And that is described throughout the book of Revelation. There are four moving parts in Revelation chapter 6. The first part is the Lord's tribulation, verses 1 through 8. And I've entitled it intentionally, The Lord's Tribulation. The tribulation that you and I read of in the book of Revelation is controlled by God. It is not something working outside of God's purpose or plan. God is reclaiming what is his as its rightful heir, creator, redeemer, chapters 4 and 5. And he's doing it through these signs and wonders. And when he is finished, he will come again. And when he comes again, heaven will be on earth. But the Lord's tribulation, and then you have the martyr's prayer in verses 9 through 11. We've read initially the idea, how long, O Lord, before they are judged and our blood is avenged. And then the Lord's response, what does the Lord say in response to the prayer that is prayed? Verses 12 through 17, and then 17b gives us the sinner's question. Well, in light of the coming, in light of the severity of what happens when Jesus comes back, who then can stand? And when you, when you see how this flows with chapter 7 and what has preceded in chapters 4 and 5, I believe it makes the right sense. But the first thing we have is the Lord's tribulation. It says in verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And the opening of each of the seals is done by the Lamb, by God. There are two complementary but contrasting ideas in chapter 6. The first is what you and I see. What you and I see are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But we're very familiar with the language of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And that's what we see and that's what's being described in verses 1 through 8. But what we don't see then is God is reclaiming what is rightfully his as heir, creator, redeemer. He is avenging those who have died for their faith. One commentator makes the following observation. The first four seals seem to belong together, which we entitle the first four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are introduced by one of the four living creatures, and we'll note that in a moment. It's preceded by come. One of the four living creatures calls forth the horse, come. Each seal contains the image of a horse and a rider. In each of the seals, there is a progression of meaning given for each of the four seals. And I'll note that. There is a logical progression between the first and fourth horse. You have this idea of imperialism, a nation taking over another nation by force. As a consequence of that, 
advancement, there's war as a consequence, there's famine as a consequence, there's death. So all four of these images are tied together. Each of these seals is opened by the Lamb. That's why I've entitled this the Lord's Tribulation, the Lamb's Tribulation. Each seal is given its authority by Christ. It only does what God tells it to do. John sees the whole process of judgment under the control of God. That is so important for us to understand. The conqueror has only what Almighty God allows him to have. God is completely sovereign, so his people do not need to be dismayed. And remember, the the pastor is writing to the church, and he's comforting and encouraging them in the midst of tribulation, and he's assuring them that what is happening in their world is under the oversight and control of God. That's good for us to hear. But let's consider what we see in the four horsemen. The first horseman is the white. This imagery of horses occurs elsewhere in books like Zechariah and Jeremiah. The horsemen do God's bidding. There is this sequence and logic, this progression in the four horsemen that we've already noted and will note in just a moment. The first seal, the white horse, speaks to this idea of an invading army. I've labeled it imperialism. Imperialism is seeking to extend its power or dominion, especially by direct territorial acquisition or by gaining political and economic control of other areas. And because it always involves the use of power, whether military or economic or some subtler form, imperialism has often been considered morally reprehensible. And the term is frequently employed in international propaganda to denounce and discredit an opponent's foreign policy. But you have this idea of an advancing army, this idea of an advancing presence. And what's interesting concerning the parallelism inside of Revelation is that the white horse in Revelation 6 contrasts with the white horse in Revelation 19. And this is what we have to always wake up to. God's got a design or program that he is pushing forward and that he is executing. We understand that, correct? There is this plan or design that God is carrying out. The serpent's seed or the devil is equally seeking to imitate and mimic what God is endeavoring to do. So if we have God, Jesus, on a white horse in Revelation 19, well, then we have this counterpart, this, this facade, this mockery, this puppet in Revelation chapter 6 on a white horse. And the image stands in contrast to the image of Revelation 19. And then we have this sequence. But the two riders on white horses serve as theological bookends for the book of Revelation. The Messiah figure in Revelation 6 is a fraudulent copy of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have here. When the white horse rider of Revelation 6 goes out to conquer, you have havoc and death. When the Messiah on the white horse of chapter 19 goes out to conquer, you have peace and salvation and rest. Only Christ can bring in lasting peace and eternal life in the kingdom of God. And that's the contrasting picture that we see inside of this chapter. And then you have the four horsemen. And there is this logical progression cited inside this vision, this cycle. First, you have imperialism on the white horse. Secondly, as a consequence of that advancement, you have war. As a consequence of the war, you have famine. As a consequence of this famine, you have death. That idea, that cycle, that presence has been always 
Right now, it's happening around us. We are going to have that until Revelation 19. Actually, we have it until the end of chapter 6, the sixth seal, but you have this repeating pattern. So Revelation 1 through 4 describes for us these things. It describes for us this advancing false army. It describes for us the consequence of war, famine, and death. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse are markers in every age. And these same markers are present in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, when you talk about the Olivet Discourse. Jesus, his immediate reference point is 70 AD. But there's this larger application coming at the second coming. And you can take the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, and you can lay it against Revelation 6, and you see that same idea being present. Why? Because that imagery in that symbolism is something that takes place all the time. So you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and these markers are pointing us to Jesus. What sets this moment apart from any other moment in time is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. So when you think of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you think of tribulation, you think of war, you think of famine, you think of death. But here's what we don't see. What we don't see in the midst of all this is what's actually taking place. Notice three tags or markers inside of this. The first is that the lamb opens. If you are looking at a paper Bible, even perhaps your electronic Bible, you'll notice you have each of the seals indented, so you know that you're shifting. But notice verse 1, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. Now, I personally believe, based on Revelation 6, that God is in control of all this. The lamb opened one of the seven seals. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal. Chapter 8, verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal. God is opening the seals. God is controlling the tribulation that we are in, that they are in. That's what's happening. The second thing you can see concerning the control of God inside of this tribulation is the word come. The word come. The word come appears in verse 1, 3, 5, and 7. And the word come is uttered by one of the four living creatures. So you have this secondary causation or mediation between God, the Lamb, and the execution of this horseman. So you have him opening the scroll, then you have those servants of the Lamb saying, to the horse, come out. Come, come, come. All of it is being controlled by God. And the third thing you see concerning this is found in verses 2, 4, and 8. It says in verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. Verse 4, And out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Verse 8, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority. So when you and I look at tribulation, when you and I look at all that's taking place in our world, when you see these advancing, intruding nations firing and, and warring with other nations and famine and death, we think, well, our world has gone out of control. But has it? This text, Revelation 6 says, it's the Lamb who has opened the seal. It's the angelic 
beings, the living creatures who have called forth these horsemen. And they have been permitted. They have been given authority. They are doing nothing but what God wants done. If chapters 6 and following show God reclaiming what is rightfully his, then when we read about the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets, all of that are his doing. God's doing it. God is in control of that tribulation. And God is in control of your tribulation. He does use secondary means, but he is guarding and guiding your life. You are here because God has ordered it. If the book of Job and the story of Joseph and the life of Jesus teaches us anything, it teaches us that God can be trusted. We might not understand everything that's taking place in our world, but we must understand that God is the one who controls it. He has authority over it. And we can trust him in the midst of it. The question is always, will we accept and will we believe that he is too wise to make a mistake and too loving to be unkind? When I look at our directory and I, I look at our prayer list and I look at those people who are right now encountering severe trial, not for their faith, but just in life itself, the brokenness of life, and I read Revelation, it assures me that God is in control of the tribulation. When you look at your life, you must be assured that God is in control. You should take great comfort when reading Revelation, that God is in control of the chaos. And the book assures us that those who are persecuted will be avenged. And that's what's so amazing to me. And, and, and I'll be open with you. When I read of the second coming, when I read when God judges and avenges, there's a side of me that recoils from it because it is so fierce. So fierce. But when we pray for the people in Qatar or China or Indonesia... When we pray for the people in Iraq or Iran where Christians are persecuted for their faith, when we pray that, those martyrs are asking the question, how long until this injustice is rectified? How long until all this brokenness is straightened out? That's what Revelation 6 is answering. How long? We have the martyr's prayer in verses 9 through 11. It says, when they opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. That's taking place all over. It has been from the first century all the way until now and until Jesus comes. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. You have this statement concerning their testimony. Then they have the prayer in verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, listen to what they say. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. The reward that they have is that they are given the robe and they are resting. And they have this assurance. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number, and listen carefully to this language, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And I, I thought to myself, how many times have I heard in my past that Jesus won't come back until the last person is saved, until the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth and Jesus will come back when that happens? This text says that Jesus will come back not when the last person has heard, but when the last Christian has been killed. Not every Christian, but the last one. 
which I find compelling and interesting. And why is that so? Because as the gospel advances, you have an increase and continuation of the martyr's blood. Those two ideas work in tandem. Tertullian, one of the second century church fathers, wrote, and it's a a popular common quote, but the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The gospel advances in the blood of the martyr. This is an inevitable consequence of sharing and spreading the gospel. It is in that context then the question is asked, how long? This whole thing, as you have this imperialism, war, famine, death, in that context, the gospel is advancing. We, we know that from the New Testament. And in that context, as the gospel advances, Christians are dying. And thus the question is asked, how long? You have then the Lord's response in verses 12 through 17. When you look at the second coming, and that's what's being described for us in 12 through 17, the imagery, the language, it's going to repeat itself. But I think this is very, very important. When you look at this idea of the second coming, it shows itself in chapter 6, 11, 14, 16, 19, and 20. Six times, at least six times, it describes for us the second coming of Jesus when that prayer is answered, when he judges and avenges. In that day, you have this statement being made. I've I've also shared how the word wrath occurs only in Revelation in that context of the second coming. But there's two thoughts described in this paragraph concerning the Lord's response to the prayer of the martyrs. How long? God says, when I come back, I will avenge you. When I come back, I will judge them when he comes back. Two things are described, the cosmos, the entire cosmos, this language is very graphic and it's used throughout the Old Testament as well as the New. But the cosmos or the universe shakes. It's very graphic language. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. When Jesus Christ comes back, the entire cosmos or universe is going to shake. How will I know when he comes back? You will not miss it. You have this graphic language being used throughout the Bible to describe when God sets all things right. All of this language is horrific. And it all speaks to God's fullest and final shaking when he completes his design. But when he does that, when he comes back, he will judge and he will avenge. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 14, gives us this graphic picture, which is a parallel to what we then see and read in 6, 11, 14, 16, 19, and 20. Listen to what it says. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts, and saying, what is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. It all seems to be continuing. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So there is coming a day when we will have this massive, radical adjustment. 
But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. It's simply saying, be patient. Be patient. Although he has tarried, be patient. Be patient. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. I believe that's what being described by Peter in 2 Peter 3 is exactly what we're reading in chapter 6, verses 12 through 17 in Revelation. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens, chapters 21 and 22 in Revelation, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3 does not use the same language as Revelation 6, 12 through 17, but it's describing the same event. When Jesus comes, there's going to be this massive restructuring, a massive correction to all this corruption and brokenness. And in that day, the people of God will be avenged. In that day, when God judges the rebel and and avenges the martyr, what happens? Well, the sinner hides. Notice what happens then. Verse 15, then the kings of the earth in the great day of judgment at the second coming of Jesus, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, even though he's described with more language the powerful, he includes then everyone, slave and free, they will hide themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, call into the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath, of their wrath, has come. The sinners hide. This passage tells me in Revelation 6, which I believe began at the ascension of Jesus Christ, that we are living in a world where there is war, famine, and death. We are living in a world that as the gospel advances in the context of tribulation, Christians are dying. And in heaven, those Christians are praying this prayer, how long? And God says, I will avenge you. I will judge them in the day of my coming. Peter describes that for us, and John describes it in 6, 11, 14, 16, 19, and 20. God will bring the self-righteous and openly rebellious to their knees. This imagery, by the way, reflects Psalm 2. This same imagery is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Listen to this. And, and here's where I want you to start seeing these big singularized pictures. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering, for which indeed writing to the Thessalonians you are in tribulation. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Same thing of, Re- of Revelation 6 the fifth seal, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, describing the same event, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. At that singular coming, 
the righteous will be rewarded and the unrighteous will receive their retribution. That's what's described. That's the answer to the prayer, how long? These will pay, verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 1, the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. It says in our text that they sought to hide themselves. Hiding only occurs three times in Revelation. Twice here for sinners hiding and once for the hidden man of Revelation 2.17. What I thought was interesting that in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in Genesis, when Adam and Eve hid themselves, it's the same Greek word being used here in Revelation 6. The sinner hides from God. You and I in Christ have no reason to hide from God. You and I approach God in Christ to a throne of grace where we find help in our time of need. The coming of Christ is no threat to us. The coming of Christ is a joy for us. It is a celebration. But it is a real threat to the unbelieving. In these verses, God shakes the universe like a rag doll. As a result, the entire world will know that there is a God. All these people that are rejecting God, the very existence of God, and then God as he is in Christ Jesus. In that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will also know that his divine wrath is unleashed against the rebellion. It is in this moment of our Lord's return that the sinner asks the inescapable question. Notice what happened. Notice the progression in our text. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? The answer to that question is going to be found in chapter 7. And that's why as you read Revelation, continue to read through Revelation and see how there's this natural flow to the book itself. You have these repeating cycles coming up throughout But chapter 6 ends with, who in that day can stand? Chapter 7 tells us who it is that can stand. Only those who have been sealed by God. And we have already looked at this idea that we, the people of God, have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And in the great day of judgment, when Jesus Christ comes back to judge the unbelieving, to avenge his people, you and I as the people of God will be able to stand. But the question asked at the coming of Christ is found throughout Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you choose to reject Jesus... You cannot escape the righteous judgment of God upon you. And that's so sobering to me. What awaits the unbelieving? The judgment of God. They will be removed forever from the presence of God. For me, that is horrifying. My prayer for us and for you is that if you don't know Jesus, that you will feel the weight of what the text just said and that you will come to Jesus for the salvation of your soul. And friend, if you know Jesus, 
which is the majority of the people sitting in this room under the sound of my voice, if you know Jesus, then rejoice because you have no fear in that day. That day, he will set all things right. There are four thoughts that I want to leave with you as we finish Revelation 6. The first is this. God oversees and controls all tribulation. God oversees and controls all tribulation. There is strong intentionality when you read Revelation 6 and following. God is the one who controls all of this. Never think that God has forgotten you, that somehow you are operating outside of what God is doing. God is working. When you look at your world at large and you think everything is collapsing, God is working. God is working. The second thing is that this tribulation does indeed have meaning and purpose behind it. The world in which we live is not arbitrary, it's not random, it's not meaningless. Always remember God is too wise to make a mistake and he's too loving to be unkind. God has got this. Remember that. The third thing when you look at a text like this is that a day of theocentric justice is coming. We have lived through several years of the cry for social justice or justice, 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 or injustice. Well, let us be assured that a day of theocentric justice is coming. There is going to be a massive correction when Jesus comes. I think it will be horrific. But that day is coming, and God will set all things right. That's why we were talking and fellowshipping over these ideas. Revelation 13 says, don't take vengeance on yourself. Don't try to avenge. It'll never work out well for you. But one is coming who will avenge, and he will avenge righteously. And we can trust him for that. And only those who are sealed by the Father shall endure. You and I need not fear tribulation. We need not fear this judgment. If you are saved... Do not be anxious, but do be assured. God is going to answer the prayers of his saints. If you are not saved, fear. But let that fear give way to belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful that Jesus Christ sits on a throne, that he has received authority, that he has and is working his will. We know that this tribulation in which we exist, this world of war and famine and death, is somehow under your control, under your oversight, and is a part of your plan of reclaiming what is yours. And we know working in tandem with this, your people suffer. And they cry out, how long? We know that a day of correction, a day of avenging will take place. And we read it and we are, to a degree, horrified. We are so thankful that the only ones who can stand in that day are those who have received your sealing. And Father, because we have believed in Jesus and we have accepted him as our Savior, we have been sealed by the Spirit. And he is our guarantee that we will come into full inheritance. We will come into full possession. Thank you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to partake of these elements which speak to the gospel, which has made it possible.
for us to embrace the coming of Jesus, for us to look with anticipation to that day. So, Father, as we come forward to receive the elements, may we do it with joy and celebration. May we do it with reflection, realizing that you alone are truly worthy. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.